You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, honorable uh, diplomats, a very knowledgeable audience I can see, and I recognize also the many young people who have come testifying, I believe, to the eternal strong relation between Sweden and Africa. For me, uh, just out of this house as director, it is nevertheless a wonderful moment to, as a coda, to invite two extremely prominent politicians, substantive organizers of the African continent, Donald Kabaruka and Christina Duarte. We have this morning an opportunity to reflect on how far we come. Some in this house go back a very long time. And if you listen to African media, if you listen to European or global media, they are taking a very long arc at the moment, thinking about how far Africa has come, the new kinds of challenges, and what we are going to do uh, beyond what Africa is going to decide to do. Issues haven't gone away. We've made enormous progress on poverty. We have made enormous progress on some conflicts. Some surprising diplomatic movements have been made, most lately between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and we can go on and on. But there is no question that this is a continent on the move, as it has been for a long time, evidently, to so many of you who have worked with and lived uh, on the continent. For the future, we don't only know the big numbers, the 2.5 billion or the 4 billion, that kind of population measurement of size. But we know that there is such a talent reserve among the young in Africa that GDP will grow in a serious way relentlessly by inner force over a long period, thanks to the reforms made within countries and between countries in the African Union. This is about as certain as you can make any prediction. And for our little continent up here in Europe, 500 million making a mess of ourselves in various ways right now, losing some of our best alliances in the global world, we need to strike very strong alliances to the emerging good, managed, governed Africa. That's essential. And I think that is the theme of today. We will focus on where the African Union is shaping the holding context of so much reform in Africa, as much as the European Union did it for us. Now, you can see the challenges we have in the European Union from the perspective of the African Union, but that just goes to show you have to work even harder. 
And between the two unions, there has to be a lasting, long partnership. Without it, I can tell you that other relations globally will stand weaker or be we in a weaker context. It is up to, in my view, the Euro, uh, the EU-AU relationship to form a lot that should be ahead of us. Anyway, we're not so much talking about the EU now. We're talking about what's going on in the African Union. And for that purpose, we have a very prominent, uh, two very prominent guests, two very uh, important partners, the Nordic um, Africa Institute and the Foreign Ministry, to uh, uh, participate, plus all of you. Um, uh, um, Mr. Kabaruka was delayed, so we have rearranged, as you've understood. And so in Mr. Kabaruka's place, I'd like to invite uh, the uh, ambassador of, uh, of uh, Rwanda, Christina Nkuli-Yinka, to speak. please speak to us. Uh, welcome up to the podium. Christina, before I let you have the mic, I just want to thank you for being such a presence in Stockholm, vis-a-vis -vis the African group of diplomats, but also in constantly reminding everyone here of the genocide in a way that I think only you can do. Please feel very welcome to the Institute. Over to you. Thank you a lot. Thank you so much also for your kind words. Uh, allow me to start by echoing uh, Mats and welcome you all, and thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, I wish also to thank the Institute of Foreign Affairs, Utrikes Institute, for hosting us uh, today, as well as the Nordic Africa Institute for a fantastic collaboration in organizing this very important seminar on an African Union for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, today, perhaps uh, more than any other period in history, few would question the fact that Africa is the last frontier as it offers most of the global growth potential. Your presence here today in such high number is a is in itself a testimony of the relevance of the topic and of the continent as a whole. On one hand, in view of the significant changes underway on our continent and in the wider world, we as Africans have to be ready to meet and address them. It is about us getting organized and be able to speak with one voice to advance Africa's interests. And on the other hand, all partners are looking at us, wondering where we are heading to, then what happens in Africa, on the African continent and our AU reforms will directly or indirect, indirectly impact all other parts of the world. As we meet today, the first ordinary session of the fifth Pan-African Parliament is underway in Kigali, Rwanda. In his capacity of chairperson of the African Union at the opening ceremony, 
President Kagame reminded the MPs that working together is the only way to give Africa's position the way it deserves in the wider geopolitical context. Regional and continental integration are key factors and the entry into force of the historic African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, ACFTA, signed in Kigali in March, we will do more than almost anything, anything else to accelerate economic growth and set straight the outdated perceptions of our continent. In this spirit, our president also urged the attending MPs to support the efforts to communicate more effectively with constituents and stakeholders in civil society about the importance of these agreements for the well-being of our citizens and of our economies. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, conducting substantial reforms is not a simple endeavor for any institution, and more so for one that has a sizable number of more than 50 countries to deal with. We are all keen to know how far we are with our ambitions and without that game-changing reforms. That's why I'm happy that today we will have the opportunity to listen and to discuss with two prominent guests and members of the Reform Advisory Committee. And thank you, Mrs. Christina Duarte, for taking your time and joining us today. And later on uh, in the after-break session, we will also have the opportunity to discuss with Dr. Kaberuka. And I'm confident that we will have an enrich enriching discussions this morning. Thank you all for your attention, and thank you again. Thank you very much, Ambassador Nkurikinka and Christina, and thank you for so much that you are, are doing in our community. Well, uh, audience, we have now an hour ahead of us before we will take a coffee break, and that's when uh, Donald Kabaruka will uh, hopefully uh, be with us. No, certainly be with us. And then we will continue with another session at 11.30 here in this room, to which you are all invited to stay. And I assure you, uh, the wait is worth it. Uh, this morning's panel will be um, uh, consist of Madame Cristina Duarte, Finance Minister of Cape Verde, former, forever, <laughs> and uh, uh, Johannes Oljelund, Director General in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and our dear Ina in the sister organization of the Nordic Africa Institute. So in order to save your legs, I'm asking, I think, the minister to come to uh, make her speech uh, where you would like, perhaps, perhaps there. Uh, may I just say the following before I give you uh, the word that Cape Verde is a very special country, not just because of the island's nature or its particular history the, in Africa, but uh, also because it has a certain spirit that relates to culture and music that is something 
that any visitor to your country is overwhelmed by, and where I believe you get some of the spirit that has set you in a special situation, but perhaps also motivated in coming as far as you have come. Sweden certainly was part of the early liberation movement. In we a strong way. In a very strong way. And more strong than I think, I don't want to speak badly about the audience, but uh, very few people know how critical it was during a critical period. You went through a period of democratization, self-discussion, economic reform, you tell me, but I think you might have been the first country in Africa to eradicate absolute poverty. You are a critical player globally, as small nations tend to be. And you yourself symbolize that in so many ways, having grown through the private sector, in finance, worked in many countries. I should look back here, but Angola, Mozambique, Kenya, I'm sure other places too, but in accumulating that, you know your continent, you know the challenges, you took responsibility in finance. Now you can speak to us about the African Union. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's a pleasure and a honor to be here in a such cold weather. I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> um, so I will make my presentation in 20 minutes. Please bear with me. Uh, I had to change the presentation last evening due to change in logistics. If there is any typing error, please bear with me because English is not my mother language. My mother language is Creole first and then Portuguese. AU reforms, challenge and opportunities have made them an imperative. I will talk, or I will present six items. One, EU reforms, the international and regional context of this last attempt. Two, EU reforms, the imperative to fix the organization. Third, EU reforms, to get it right Financial sustainability and budgeting efficiency are the backbones. Fourth, EU reforms, the 0.2% Levi and World Trade Organization. Fifth, EU reforms, a continental free trade area as a possible option to most favor nation challenges. And sixth, EU reforms, why this time is different. The international regional context of this last attempt. Since the, AU, since the AU's foundation in 2002, the global context has changed dramatically. Most African states have transitioned to democracy. A new international economic order is emerging. Some people doesn't like this word, but sorry. I will say it. A new international economic order is emerging. China as a major economic force. Religious, religious extremism is on the rise. The use of social media is now widespread 
and has a power to shape civil society decisions. Mass migration. And some countries did move to the far right of the political spectrum. We are running out of time in terms of environment, environmental sustainability. Multilateralism is under threat. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, many countries adopt increasingly protective and inward-looking trade measures. And Africa's potential figures call for efficient decision-making and effective action. What are these figures? Household spending is expected to grow from 1.5 trillion in 2015 to 2.1 trillion in 2025. Spending by business is expected to grow from 2.6 trillion to 3.5 trillion in the same period. Africa could nearly double its manufacturing output from 500 billion today to 930 billion in 2025. Meeting this demand for imported goods, uh, meeting this demand for manufactured goods through imports in a context of low commodity prices and weakening currencies does not make sense. Average annual revenue from large African companies is around 2.7 billion, compared with 4 billion to, to 4.5 billion in other emerging economies. The level of African growth is far below the 7% rate needed to reduce the number of people in absolute poverty from 470 million in 2015 to 406 million in 2030. If African countries manage to grow on average 7% in the next 15 years, poverty will be just slightly reduced from 470 million to 406 million. And you are not growing at 7%. We are growing between 3 and 4%. So the SDG number one will not be reached. Every know, everybody knows today. Africa rising has been mostly a story of economic growth based on GDP. It is a overlie one-dimensional. It is clear from development experience that high economic growth is not enough to end the vicious cycle of poverty or to ensure inclusiveness. So it is not enough to deliver structural transformation. In addition to this major and structural challenge, there were three facts that catalyzed the decision making, the decision making behind this last attempt to reform the EU. The first, the Libyan crisis. When the Libyan crisis began in 2011, the African Union wanted to use a political negotiated approach to facilitate a transition of power and avoid war. Yet, that policy approach was overridden by Western powers. Everybody knows that story. The second fact is the AU financial crisis. AU approach a quasi-PK situation. Third, the lack, the lack of consensus around the Obasanjo's report about 
alternative sources of financing. So this is the international and regional context of this last attempt and reforms. AU reforms, the imperative to fix the organization. This chart is a clear picture of the problem or the challenge that we are facing when dealing with AU reforms. Too many departments, too many directions, overlappings, flows not clearly defined, no profiles, etc. The African Union has 11 AU organs, 20 high-level committees and subcommittees, 31 AUC departments and office, 8 AUC direct, di directories, 31 specialized technical agencies, 7 aspirations under Agenda 2063, 20 goals under our agenda, and 39 priority areas under the same agenda. The question is, how this structure will deliver the Agenda 2063. So basically what we notice, a huge mismatch between the strategy and the goals and the priorities and structure. And it was clear to everybody that the priorities and structure were not fit for purpose in terms of strategy and, and goals. And basically, uh, the risk was to be captured by challenge and will continue missing the opportunities. So the diagnosis has been done in 2007. I'm sure that you already heard about the Adagi report, the Merkel report, etc., etc. These reports, I think is important to, to tell, to say here, these reports, they did the diagnosis of the situation. They raise the problems in a very, in a very deep, deep way. However, many of these recommendations have not, be, have not been implemented. Since 2000, lots of reports, lots of recommendations, but zero implementation. I remember when I joined the AU Reform Advisory Committee, at that time, the number of summit decisions not implemented and nobody knew the point was 1,500 decisions. So what's the reason for this deep lack of implementation? First, poor stakeholder buy-in at all levels, insufficient monitoring and evaluation, and most critically, the lack of structured implementation process within the AU. And regarding this third aspect, you will see down in my presentation, this is one of the things that now is making the difference. As a result, the AU continues to face today, despite the short path that has been implemented in the past five years, four major challenges. The AU is highly fragmented with too many focus areas. They use complicated structure and limited man managerial capacity lead to inefficient working methods, poor decision-making, and poor top leadership and lack of accountability. Third, the EU is neither financially independent nor, nor self-sustaining. 
rely instead on partnering funding for much of this financing, and coordination between the Afghan Union and the RECs is quite limited. In line with this, six recommendations have been more or less approved by the head of states. The first, the EU should focus on four strategic areas, political affairs, peace and security, economic integration and development, and global representation in voice. Second, the EU Commission should be restructured to fit for the purpose. Agenda 2063, so in terms of the implementation of the Agenda 2063, and improve its efficiency and effectiveness. Third, the EU's deputy chairperson and commissioners should be recruited competitively with involvement of the EUC chairperson. Fourth, NEPAD should be fundamental reposition. Fifth, the Kigali Summit, and we'll discuss later in detail, the Kigali Summit's financial recommendations should be implemented. The last one, the EU and the RECs should have explicit and complementary roles within the new uh, strategic agenda. Third, EU reforms. To get it right, financial sustainability and budgeting efficiency are the backbones. Some numbers. In 2014, EU budget was 380 million. More than 50% was funded by donors. In 2015, the budget rose to about 400 million. 60% was funded by donors. In 2016, donors contribute with 60% out of 470 million. In 2017, the country, donors' contribution reached 73% out of a budget of 782 million, with member states contributing with 212 million, so only 27%. The EU's program, peacekeeping, health, education, are are, or have been 97% funded by donors. The question is, how can member states own the EU if they do not set its programming agenda? So in 2002, EU, the African Union, emerged with a set of priorities. But one has been classified as number one priority, to provide reliable and predictable funding for continental peace and security through the peace funds. Down the road, lots of things happen. Down the road emerged the Obazanjo report, based on Obazanjo panel. And basically, the Obazanjo report presented three options to raise predictable funding. The $2 hospitality levy per stay in hotel instead of tourism levy, five cents the for per text message, and $5 travel levy on flight tickets originating from, from or coming to Africa from outside Africa. But these proposals did not generate a consensus. The lack of consensus around the Obazanjo proposal, the, Lib the Libya crisis, and the following financial crisis accelerate the moment for to advance the discussion on the EU financing or funding. Then we are in 2015, 
And that was an important decision in the Joe Berg summit, a very important decision, a political criteria that will shape the process from that moment now on. So the AU Assembly reached consensus regarding the scale of assessment and financing of the African Union based on three principles, solidarity, equitable payment, and capacity to pay, and ensuring that no single country bears a disproportionate share of the budget. That was a quite important moment from a political, from a political standpoint. Based on this principle, the decision set some targets. Namely, the EU to fund 100% of the operational budget, 75% of the program budget, and 25% of the peace and security uh, uh, operations. Down the road, September 2015, Caberuca was appointed high representative of the peace, of the peace fund. And in, in January 2016, for the first time, heads of states decide to organize a retreat on financing the union. This is another milestone. And in July 16, the retreat on financing the union did happen in Kigali, where the 0.2% levy on eligible imports has been, has been decided. So, has been decided. But there was a problem. While the decision of the heads of states provide the political basis for the introduction, for the introduction of the levy, it was not enough to provide guidance on the implementation of the decision. Here you are leading, you are dealing, sorry, you are dealing with an organization that has a long history of lack of implementation. The heads of state took this decision in terms of financing on a very sustainable way, EU, but did not provide guidance how to do it. Of course, some questions were raised by member states. First, and not only by members, by member states, also far, some questions were raised by donors. First one was the 0.2% levy and world trade organizations and international trade agreements. That was a major issue essentially raised by the United States and by Japan. Second issue that has been raised, member states' oversight of the, over the use of the resources. So budget efficiency. Countries basically, they said, we are willing to finance, but please tell me how the money will be spent. Because every now, everybody knows that transparency, budget transparency, and budget accountability has been a major challenge uh, in the African Union. Third question raised, principles and process of prioritization of the AU activities. Of course, we are 55 African countries. Our needs towards the African Union are different. What Cape Verde expects from the African Union, I can assure you, is not security and peace funding, because we never had a war in our country. But we are a small island country, 
and you are not con you are not linked to the continent. So maybe our priority is to solve, for example, trans maritime transportation and air transportation to link to link the, the Cape Verdean economy to the continent. But if you go to RDC or Benin, the request towards African Union is different. So the African countries basically say, okay, we don't mind you are going to put the money, but we would like to understand very well the criteria and the decision-making process towards the prioritization of, of, of the EU activities. And the first question raised was the calculation of the SS contributions of African members, of African member states to the budget of the African of the African Union. As you know, there are some African countries that have been financing much more than others, much above what they were supposed to 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 finance. The 0.2% levy is solving, and I will give you numbers, is solving the financing challenge and the budgeting efficiency to provide assurance to African countries that the money will be well spent. So to avoid past mistakes, because up to this decision, all the previous decisions were only on the financing side. Never the African Union has spent time reflecting and deciding well on the budgeting side. For the first time, this is happening. Financing, sustainability is going together with budget um, efficiency. Uh, so, indeed, as I, I just made, this was one of the key missing elements from past discussion on VAU sustainable financing. So, in fact, at the same time the 0.2% Levi decision is taken, the EU Assembly, Council and Commission made various attempts to address the fact that the budget process is too fragmented and opaque and not linked to results management. For the first time within the African Union, the finance ministers played a very operational and committed role. I have been Minister of Finance for 10 years. And I used to tell my Minister of Foreign Affairs every time he knocked on my door to pay the cost. And I will tell this in a very open way. Once you demonstrate to me as Minister of Finance that the money is well spent, I will be very reluctant to pay the costs. So, for the first time, the Minister of Finance are brought in in the budgeting process. So, uh, the F F10, as everybody knows, has been, has been set up. Now is F10+. Plus. We start with 10 finance ministers there are, are 15. And they are actually participating on the preparation of the budgeting, on the monitoring and evaluation of the budget. And you will see that the, the 2019 budget is completely different from the 2018 and previous, and previous budget. The golden rules have been approved. Everybody, I'm sure, heard about these golden rules have been approved in terms of budget preparation, budget management, and budget execution. And the 2019 budget has been already prepared under these, 
under these uh, uh, golden rules. As per the AUC chairman, in 2018, member states have almost funding 40% of the African Union program budget compared to less than 5% in 2015 when we start our, our journey. And today, more or less 23 countries are under, and under uh, implementation modes regarding the 0 0.2, 0 0.2 levies. AU reforms and World Trade Organization. The first issue raised was regarding the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Uh, as you know, the, in December 2016, the United States raised this question. Down the road, Japan raised this question. This question and basically, they raised three issues. The most favored nation principle, because Africa is not uh, a free trade area. The second, duties and charge not in World Trade Organization schedule, and fees not commensurate with service, so render indirect protectionism under GATT Article 8. From a legal standpoint, from an international law standpoint, these questions are appropriate questions, are appropriate questions. Not from a geopolitical and strategic standpoint, because Africa's situation is not an Africa it's not only an African problem, it's a global problem. So, but from a geopolitical and strategic standpoint, we need to face, of course, solutions to overcome these legal, these legal issues. The second question is regarding the eligible goods, because the decisions say, apply 0.2% on eligible goods. But what are the eligible? It depends from country to country. So, um, the best example is Rwanda. Rwanda, and this comes the reason why increased flexibility was introduced on the implementation of 0.2% levy. In fact, Rwanda basically established the levy on imported goods for financing the African Union as stipulated by the Heads of States Summit. But in, in order to, to face this challenge of eligible goods, basically, Luanda, except, um, did not apply the 0.2% levy to exempt it, to exempt it rule, to, to exempt it goods, sorry. Which is a very simple and straightforward uh, rule. Okay, I apply, I adopt 0.2% levy, except for these, uh, for these uh, goods for the following reasons. So, and Rwanda now is, uh, is already managing what I would say a very normal, a very normal, a very normal situation. AU reforms a continental free trade area as a possible option to most favored nation challenge. As everybody knows, levies are normal instruments. ECOWAS can do it because it's a free trade zone. ECAS can do it because it's a free trade zone. The Africa as a whole is not a free trade zone. And therefore, a levy imposed on outside imports would be seen, and has been seen, as a discrimination under World Trade Organization. So the summit has decided, in order to overcome this problem, the summit has decided that 
the African Union should become a continental free trade area, which has just the decision has been, has been, has been taken. Of course, the, the, the economic free trade area, African economic free trade area, uh, as a, a set of protocols. And when you go, when we try to read, go through the protocols, you see that the challenge is huge. Is huge, the challenge. What, what are the main areas? For example, tariff liberalization schedules, rules of origin, customs procedures and cooperation, trade facilitation, transit and transit facilitation, non-tariff barriers, technical barriers to trade, sanitary and phytosanitary measures and trade remedies. Basically, uh, the full and effective establishment and implementation of the CFTA would seem to provide a stronger legal foundation for the use of the 0.2% levy. And basically, this, this is the path that has been taken by the African member, member states. So the, we can consider the CFTA is a milestone in the financial sustainability path of the African Union, besides being a precondition to economic integration. As you used to say, two rabbits with one shot. So we address the legal issues related to the 0.2% Levi implementation. And the same, at the same time, we create a very fertile ground for economic integrations. Two rabbits with one, with one shot. EU reforms. Why this time is different? And this is my last point. First, strong political will. It is happening. Despite the militarism crisis, only this year, four summits. November will be the fourth summit dedicated to reforms. Second, for the first time, strong leadership at the head of state's level. For the first time, regional collective leadership has never happened before. Regional collective leadership. Heads of states, bureau to control the decision-making process, and more to oversee implementation. For the first time, we have heads of states overseeing implementation. Third, there are champions among the regional collective leadership. President Kagame, the first time. On top of having a regional collective leadership, among these regional collective leadership, there are champions. Fourth, the recognition by the heads of state that, first, a robust implementation plan is needed to drive these reforms and ensure that they do not follow previous failed attempts. Second, the implementation plan must have strong ownership and commitment, commitment from leadership and the organization, must have clear accountability and responsibility. As of states, for the first time, have recognized these two, these two aspects. Fourth, consistency and persistency. If you analyze since 2002, but more since 2007, the amount of decisions 
and the quality of decisions are a great indicator. That the fact, in fact, there, is, there has been consistency and persistency in the decision-making making process. The, sink, the sixth item that makes the difference, African Union Assembly, for the first time, has set up support structures and engagement mechanisms at the multiple levels to ensure that African Union reforms process is not hindered by any challenge. For the first time, we had the heads of state troika that has been enlarged. For the first time, we have a ministers of foreign affairs committee that one of main responsibility is to manage from a political also and operational standpoint, the reforms. For the first time, we have a committee of ministers of finance to look not only on the financing side, but on, on the budgeting side. And for the first time, has been created a monitoring and evaluation unit in the African, African Union. Seven, 2018 adoption of the agreement establishing the African continental free trade area. This makes the difference. The protocol to the treaty establishing the African economy community relating to free movements of persons and the right to residence and right of establishment. Even from an international agreement standpoint, very bold decisions have been taken for, for the first time. Reflecting, again, the fact that the heads of states, this time, they set up support structures and engagement mechanisms, which had not happened before. Eight, strong level of consultations, communication, discussions, and articulations. The level of consultations, communications, discussions, have never been seen before in the African Union, never. Nine, there is a feeling, there is a spirit of anticipating conflict management. This is the reason that the heads of states said that the process of division of labor between the bodies commission and the regional economic communities should be based on solid analysis and clear consensus. 10, the preparation of the 2019 budget demonstrates a significant shift in the program planning and budgeting process from the previous budget processes. The process was guided by the nine golden rules. For the first time, I'm just giving this example. For the first time, and it was really funny, for the first time, the budgeting process was submitted to budget ceilings. The first three weeks was just amazing. There were departments that just refused to do the budget because they have been put in a ceiling, which is normal in the budgeting, in the budgeting process. 11, the new budgeting process cut the 2019 budget by 12%. Do you remember the slide where the budget has been increasing? 2004, from 300 million, billion, sorry, up to million, 300 million to about 800 million in four years. Inflection. I'm a, I, this is my last slide. Uh, so, cut by 12% to 681 million, compared to the 790 million in 2018. 12, the 31st African Union Summit in Waxhaw 
earlier this month, for the first time, saw a vigorous interrogation of the organization's proposed budget. For the first time, people look at the figures. For the first time, people question the figures. Was not that approved? Approve, approve, no. Was not a blind approval. Issues of corruption and mismanagement were also brought to light as part of the process. Thirteen, there was, for the first time, also a, scr a scrutiny on money already spent. So the, not only the 2019 budget, but members of, of state and the council, they went back for money already spent, a step that could bolster the confidence of member states that their contributions will not go to waste. Fourteen, so the security reform agenda follows the passing of two signature EU decisions this year, aiming at opening the, the continent sky through a single air market, will be also an, another milestone, and the, I just mentioned the Continental Free Trade Agreement, the largest in the world since the creation of the World Trade Organization. So by concluding, I would like just to state the following sentence. By owning, by owning and shaping its financial agenda, the continental body aims to not only improve its performance and governance structure, but above all, assert its political legitimacy and credibility. Thank you. Dear Madam Minister, Madam Duarte, Christine, may I ask you to please uh, stay up on the podium here because I'm sure people will want to address you. Thank you uh, for such a formidable presentation of the reality of change. I know that perhaps this audience follows change, but it isn't up to it isn't actually evident to broad segments of a very educated, engaged public opinion to know the state of institutional change that has been driven, why, and through, out, and what meaning this will have. We tend to be occupied by all kinds of things that come into our news, but it is such a grateful opportunity for us to hear it straight from the core where you have been working. So thank you very much. And thanks to uh, Christine and to Ina for having insisted that you should be here uh, with us and hear it. Thank you very much. We um, uh, will ha now have two commentaries. So Johannes and, and Ina, if you would like to uh, join the podium, and yes, yes, you can sit down if you would like. It's it's up to you, um, Johannes. Uh, we have agreed that uh, you go first, I think, and you have uh, uh, something I think also substantial to share uh, with us. Uh, you are now the new director general for international development cooperation within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I know you have a background as a diplomat, both in Africa, Pretoria, I believe, and, and in Europe as well. So fantastic to have you here. 
Ina, uh, well, I'll say a word when the word comes to you. But please have a rest on your chairs or rest over there. But I'll give the floor to Johannes now, please. Thank you very much. Well, I, uh, I was listening to you and, uh, and uh, sort of seeing so what can I now add? I, uh, you know, what, what comments can I now, can I now give? Uh, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a hard act to follow, uh, but of course I can, I can give some, uh, some reflections on, uh, on our perspective, uh, which I think, uh, I mean, compared to what you, you have said, I'm, I'm afraid I will be on a more, uh, more lofty sort of perspective, uh, as I, I will not go into the, the budgetary details. Uh, but I, I will say a few comments on those. I think that for us, it's 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 very important for Sweden to 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 start off by uh, by saying uh, that we are we feel that a direct relationship with the with the EU, from the EU and also from Sweden, is in itself very very important. And uh, this is not really in question; it hasn't been questioned. But there is a debate and a discussion uh, that in practice, uh, to some extent, puts this in question. And I think that very much relates to what you have said about the need for reform, for, for, for the possibility uh, and also willingness to some extent from, from donors and from, from other actors to engage. I think this reform is very, very crucial and very important for this to be, uh, to be a real possibility. Our position and our, our, uh, our, our ask, our want, is that the EU, the EU-Africa partnership, that the EU really plays a prominent role in this. That, this, that we do not uh, venture into a relationship where, where the EU, uh, with all its problems, with all its challenges internally, uh, but still, uh, e even in that challenging environment, a, a long tradition of uh, working out uh, joint positions, working uh, closely together, uh, a structure that allows us to also do that, that we do not use that position to create relationships. It's important to create relationships with individual African countries, as, of course, but not in a way that we skip the EU. And I, I just want to make that clear as a starting point. And this is, of course, because the EU has, has the potential to bring together the continent on on important topics, on security, uh, on peace and security, regional integration, trade, as you have mentioned, uh, but also on normative issues, uh, importantly on normative issues. And I, I shouldn't draw too many parallels between the EU and, and, uh, and the AU. It's, uh, we have different histories, we have, uh, we have this different institutional uh, settings and so on, but there are parallels in this, uh, where I think that uh, there's a uniqueness to that uh, potential in that relationship between the EU and the AU. And um, we, we, of course, do see great potential in, in, the, in, the, in the EU-Africa alliance, as we now, as we now with the presented EU-Africa alliance on sustainable investment and jobs. Uh, it's still, uh, still a relatively new discussion, a discussion that is, uh, that is uh, taking shape and, and uh, so I, I'll stop at saying that there's great potential in it, and then we need to work more uh, for that to become a reality and see the real, uh, the more exact definitions in it. But again, I would say that this is a direct follow-up to, to the EU 
uh, AU Summit uh, in Abidjan, and it also builds on AU initiatives. Again, illustrating that this, that the at the core of this, there is there is a relationship to the AU as such, and not only to individual uh, African countries. A, a word on the African continental free trade area. I mean, it, this is also. Talking about normative issues, this is a brave uh, and very uh, important uh, initiative in, in an area of protectionist tendencies, and, uh, and, and we should recognize that. We, we also recognize that it carries a lot of challenges in, in terms of implementation and, and be, before it comes to a reality. And I think, of course, the, the EU has something to offer. We have a long tradition of working on this issue. I, as everybody, uh, as, as people know, it's not an issue that we have stopped working on. It's an issue that continues daily, that requires a lot of engagement every day, on and on and on. So it's, it will be, of course, an implementation issue. Another area, of course, is the AUPC and the EUPC, uh, which I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about after uh, after after the break. Uh, but just to just to say that this is a strong alliance. We have. Uh, they have traveled together, they're meeting, I think, this week in Brussels, uh, uh, and, 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 and that relation is uh, it's very, in a way, very practical and, uh, and uh, you know, a, a functioning relationship that, 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 uh, that, uh, that illustrates what we can do when we work together. Um, our support to the... To the uh, through the EU African peace uh, uh, peace facility, it continues. Uh, we are willing to continue that support, but we are also, uh, I would say, uh, uplifted and, and recognize uh, the importance of mobilizing domestic African funding and your and your own funding. Uh, uh, there is, uh, and I'm not saying this from a, from a financial point of view, but there is something troubling in. EU funding 97 or donors funding 97%. But that's that's uh, that's clearly clearly troubling. But now we see movement and we recognize that movement and that's very important. Uh, I think that, of course, the reform agenda is crucial from many points of view. It's crucial to drive values that that Sweden also also shares. It's important to drive African ownership and. And, uh, and, and of continental challenges, and, uh, and uh, it's important to create the conditions for that true dialogue between EU and Africa that we are that we are asking for, and that we are genuinely asking for, or genuinely genuinely want to see. But but the reform agenda is also important to to make that a, a real possibility. On a very practical level, it's also important because. Uh, you were showing figures uh, uh, saying how, how donor support has grown as a percentage, as a, as a part of the, of the AU budget. Uh, and, 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 and you were clear that this is in itself a, a problem. But I would also say on a very practical level that we, uh, we do want to see uh, African financing, domestic internal financing grow. We have no objections to that. We fully agree with that. But I would also say that it, we... We have to recognize that it's also, in, to some extent, difficult for us to be a funder, precisely because of the issues you, you are talking about, transparency, efficiency, 
And in that sense, the, the, the reform process is also very important. It allows us to be perhaps a better partner in, in that sense. I, I, I hope so. Um, so in sum, we, 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 we therefore hope for a very successful, extraordinary EU summit in November, and of course, uh, uh, the, the, the process thereafter to, to, to drive these reforms. And I want to signal that we want to be a partner in that politically and financially when needed, but we, uh, in the best way that we can do. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Johannes, for that reflection on the Swedish and partner situation with the reform process. I'm sure uh, uh, the audience may want to come back to you on, and perhaps especially after the break on issues that relate to specific situations where we're working together. Ina, dear Ina, sweetie, you have been my sister here in the institutional world for a long time uh, driving a very positive reform at the Nordic Africa Institute, being a reliable partner. You yourself come with the academic background. You have been uh, in the diplomatic world. You've been in the multilateral world. You've been in the activist world, and perhaps particularly on gender issues in Southern Africa. Um, you were one to make this happen, so please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. I often used to say that um, having introduced with such a background, you always wonder that am I that old? Um, young at heart, however, thank you much. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it's a fantastic uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, this event of discussing the, the AU reform has been a dream um, uh, to, to organize uh, because we felt, uh, Nordic Africa Institute and the, the Institute for International Affairs, that maybe there is not enough information on what's really happening in the, um, in the continent. And of course, with our partners, uh, uh, Embassy of Rwanda, Ambassador, we are very grateful that uh, we could make this happen. And uh, um, despite some logistical challenges, we are here and I think I'm, I'm really impressed by the presentation of, of Christina. I think uh, I thought I'd been follow, following the process, but now I really know what's going on, I must say. Um, in preparation of my short comments, we are having a, a challenge of time. Of course, I, I, I was wondering, okay, so which perspective shall I take? Uh, of course, I represent Nordic Africa Institute that has its main um, task to to uh, analyze and, and inform about African contemporary development. So this event already, yeah, I, I, I'll do my job very well of bringing this, uh, making this happen. But then I thought, okay, what would we Nordic people, uh, we, all, we are Nordic Africa Institute, um, we often want to reflect uh, our thinking about Africa to the thinking how we organize um, our, our ideas of, of different um, political processes. And I, I was thinking that perhaps one um, issue that I could add to this is the popular buy-in. You mentioned in your presentation that there has been, um, there have been a poor stakeholder uh, buy-in in all levels at the previous reforms. So what we also try to do at the Institute is always to try to listen to the voice of the South. 
Of course, now it's a bit funny. I'm the one representing the voices of the South. But since I've been put on the podium, I would like that to be reflected, to ask some questions that how much the, 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 the people of Africa, the, the, the people who this reform or the African Union and the different organizations are supposed to, to have an impact on, um, what kind of, um, uh, in which ways the African Union, the regional economic communities, as well as the the, the sovereign governments um, are able with this reform to uh, improve the lives of the ordinary citizens. African Union, as you men already showed, has a very ambitious goals. It's a norm setter, it's a standard setting organization. It, is, it has several charters that are supposed to give some guidance to the national governments in order to um, uh, plan and implement policies that in the end will improve the services and the living standards of the African people. So I think that's a, a perspective that many people ask now. Um, we, I think we are convinced, uh, Christina, after your presentation that there is, um, there is a reform process happening. There is, uh, um, a, 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 um, as you are saying, uh, there is already many committed uh, leaders of the governments and, of, uh, and there are certain organs that's been organized, uh, already set up. But at the same time, I'm still asking, so how does this reflect or will be reflected in the ordinary people's lives in the continent? And, uh, um, and this is, of course, a, a question what we often pose when we look at the integration processes in Europe. We, ha we have a crisis at the moment, what Mats mentions. We have less um, uh, trust and, 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 and confidence in, in integration and, and international collaboration. Of course, that is again a European problem, but on the global scale, I think this is an issue that, 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 that calls a little, little bit more analysis. In order to understand, I went quickly this morning to look at the Afroparameter. Uh, which is a very good reflection of the, the popular opinion in the, in, in, in the continent. And, and to save time, I just say one thing that struck me is that um, in the recent Afrobarometer, that is 2016, it shows that uh, only three out of 10 respondents know enough of African Union to even respond the questions that whether they think it has, it's functioning or it has a meaningful impact on their lives. This is again 2016, so it might be that uh, times uh, things have improved, but I think it's a figure we have to keep in mind. Three out of 10 uh, in these uh, 52 countries don't even know about African Union to make a qualitative opinion on that. Just to conclude, um, um, so of course, the African Union needs to, through this reform, needs to to, to generate decisions and generate um, 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 uh, changes in the sovereign governments in order to improve and show the worth of its uh, activities. But at the same time, I think it has to impact on some kind of popular awareness campaign. And funny enough, when I was sitting last time in the uh, South African Airways, I was reading Savo Bona, which is one of the airline magazine. There are two full-page advertisements of the reform. Um, so this is, of course, one way of doing it 
advertising what's happening, making a, a conscious awareness campaign, what African Union can do for the ordinary people in the continent. But so my questions or comments to you is that, do you believe that there will be um, a, a better uh, stakeholder buy-in and what are the mechanisms how African Union can show that this um, reform is going to be positive uh, on the grassroots in different countries in Africa? Thank you very much, Mats. Thank you, Ina. Before you answer, let me just open up for a, a couple of questions, if you are brief. Uh, I, we can get a few of them and we can pass them on to you. So please. Yeah, my, my name is uh, Van Liemt. Uh, first of all, uh, Mrs. Duarte, thank you for a formidable presentation. It was very impressive. Uh, I, you said you talked about the reform of the African Union, and in the process you talked about the free trade uh, agreement. Uh, and from what I understood, it's basically you mentioned it as a source of income. Uh, but I was just wondering, I just want to take that a little bit further. Um, as you know, uh, Africa trades very little with itself. It trades mainly with the rest of the world. So, and if you have this free trade agreement, what is your mental picture? Uh, because when it comes to intra-African trade, it's basically about uh, cumbersome border procedures. It's about uh, production structures that are not really complementary. So, if you have this FTA, what do you see as the future of trade within Africa, quite apart from the 0.2% that you will earn from the, uh, <laughs> the trade itself? Sir? Thank you very much, um, Honorable Minister. I, I would like, I'm first Ambassador of Sudan, Sweden. Um, I would like to see how much is um, the, um, the wrecks in Africa. The wrecks are affecting the AU development and uh, structure and restructure. The wrecks we do have, for instance, um, um, the Great Lake Region Conference, um, the EGED, the COMESA, and we do have the SEDEC. Um, this is in this part of Africa where I belong to, or my country belong to. If I can just take um, Uganda, Kenya, and Sudan, Ethiopia, they have the membership actually in these, including the Great Lake region and the EGAT, maybe in the East African community, and the Kemense. And these blocks, now they have coming together for what they call it the tripartite. It's actually bringing the uh, SADC, the Kemese, and the East African community to another level, which is a bigger market in, in the region. And now you can imagine the membership of, of, of the RECs, uh, should we look for it as additional value to the AU or it is deducting from them? Because a country, most of these countries are poor and when they pay from their budget to these uh, RECs, four or five RECs in the in the same year, at the same time, they're supposed also to pay the AU budget. That makes it a lot of money that's coming from the public purse from these countries to the AU. Um, but definitely, 
there must be a logic behind why have we do all these organizations. It's not just organizations for trade or economic um, uh, suppressivity. It is also for peace. It is for security. It's for other issues that is um, a common interest of these countries. So would, would we carry, actually, should we go on side by side with these wrecks, or should we minimize the wrecks and we give, actually, um, more strengths for the AU so that it can be more robust and, and constructive? Thank you. Thank you. Well, Madam Dwarty, you had three questions there on the sub-regional, on the FTA, and what does AU bring to the people? You heard even more, I'm sure, but over to you to, uh, for these questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, AU and the people of Africa. My friend Ina, uh, before um, demanding AU, this type of deliver, I think we need to start Demand, demanding to the Afghan government. If you jump to the EU, I think we'll, the picture will become grey. The first and the main responsibles to deliver what they are supposed to deliver, health, education, peace, whatever, to the people are the governments. Most of them have been elected on a democratic contest, if the government's program is perceived by Afghan policymakers as a social contract with civil society, they'd better deliver. And I, I think it's time for the, the, for the African civil society to start demanding this. Fortunately, uh, African civil society is becoming a quite assertive one thanks to the emergency of the middle class. Uh, and uh, I believe also that Afghan policymakers now understand that delivery has become a huge challenge in Africa. If you don't deliver, you will not stay there. Of course, there are cheatings. But they are everywhere. I remember when the election between Al Gore and Bush. So, cheatings are everywhere. But if you don't deliver, you will not stay there. This is the, so this is the, the, the principle. Having said that, I agree with you. I agree with you that there is a huge lack of information, communication, towards the people in general. Three out of 10. Three out of 10. This is a very small, a very small, very small, a very small ratio. That was the first question, correct? The second one, um, the continental free trade area. Uh, what time? The continental free trade area, the main, the main aspect is paving the way to economic integration. The medium to long-term result is that one. Uh, the fact that the 0.2% Levi required a free trade area as per WF, WTO requirements is just, sorry to tell you this, 
just a small step in the big path, because the big path is to create the conditions for economic integration. I, in one of my slides, I mentioned that the demand for ma manufactured goods in AFTA will increase from 500 to about 900. The question is, who is going to provide it? That demand will be satisfied how? By importing, huge mistake. With low commodity prices and weak currencies, this is the worst solution. This is the worst solution. So Africa will have to implement an industrialization strategy, adopting very strict environment parameters. I used to say, we are doing this, the industrialization, late. Thanks God, we can do it right. Thanks God, we are doing now. But let's do it right. So I believe that before the industrialization strategy, you have to take care of the market. Otherwise, you will be in a trap down the road. Let's take care of the market by creating the free trade zone. So the main aspect is economic integration and increased intra-trade. It's not to, the, to solve the 0.2% Levi is a byproduct. With all, all my due respect, it's just a, a, a byproduct. But okay, you have the free trade, but you have you have no infrastructures, no roads, no railroads, and transportation is what it is. So. Okay, we create the free trade zone. And then we need the infrastructure. The infrastructure we need around 90 billion a year. At the same time, Africa loses 50 billion a year in illicit flows with their right hand. With the left hand, he begs for money. He begs for money and waits three, four, five years for that money. At the same second, he loses. So 50 billion in illicit flows. So another challenge that is related with trade via infrastructure is domestic resource mobilization. If you don't sort it out, we'll not get, we'll not, uh, uh, get there. The other question quickly is a UN RECS. When you have 55 countries, different countries, uh, you start creating regional economic communities. This is what happened in the past 30 years. But you have to see that this happened without having in place a continental structure. So it was just um, a quite um, not organized process. Now, since you didn't take care of this issue in the past 25 years, and now we have as you mentioned, sir, N plus K regional bodies. Now, the only alternative we have is damage management, because they are already there. And, and for damage management, we do need a continental structure. We do need an African Union that, as the power, is entitled to put all the wrecks and starts cleaning in terms of overlapping, and this is already start. 
for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, and Cabaruca has this data better than myself, if I'm not mistaken, last year, during the, the AU summits, for the first time, there were parallel meetings dedicated to African Union and regional economic communities for the first time. Let's sit, discuss, and try to solve, uh, so to solve the problems. Having said that, we all know that multilateralism is under crisis. Everybody knows that. The United Nations, not only from a financial standpoint, but also from a civil society standpoint. If you talk to people, they are septic. They talk about the United Nations, people have become septic. They blame globalization for everything. Globalization has, has taken out billions out of poverty, but the reality has left much more. The reality has left much more. What happened? So, basically, uh, the multilateralism has these two functions. Paved the way to globalization, everybody knows. The World Bank and IMF are configured to pave the way to globalization. But if you don't empower at the same level the United Nations systems to manage the check and balance of this process, you end up what is just happening, happening now. Uh, one of the discussions that just happened uh, last week in Shenzhen about multilateralism, I had the opportunity to participate, that the rescue of multilateralism has to grow through regionalism. You have to reinforce your regional organizations by reinforcing the state's members and then rescue multilateralism. If this is the case, we are in the right path. This is what we are doing. We are rescuing our continental organization. Through rescuing our continental organization, we'll manage to, to render our regional, our RECs more effective, more effective and efficient, eliminating the overlappings. It will take time, but from an ECOA standpoint, that is the one that I know better, we are more than open to do that. Why? Because now everybody has understood, particularly the policymakers, that to deliver jobs, you need that. Now they, 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 they relate jobs to integrated market. Once the policymakers are relating jobs to integrated market, we'll get there. So you'll get there. Thank you. Thank you very much. With leaders like you, we will get there. I've seen AU and ECOWAS at work in West Africa, essential. And I remember Salim Salim all the way back to OAU days. What a change. What a change you have presented. We have just begun this morning, but we'll take a little break now. Thank you so much for this presentation. Let's give all of the panel an applaud. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>